0: The collaboration, Warhol and Basquiat combine. Welcome to the Joie de Vivre community, where we aim to put the joie into Vivre. I am your host, Robin Priest, self-appointed cultural attaché to the discerning listener. We rate experiences from marvelous to spiffing and then to tolerable or execrable. Today, I'm discussing the collaboration a new play at the Young Vic Theatre in London that chronicles the mid-1980s relationship between two famous New York artists, Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat. This is a marvellous evening's entertainment. It is playing only until April 2nd, and I'd hate for you to miss it, so trust me, pause this podcast, buy your ticket, and then come back and listen to the rest of it. So why is this such a good evening's entertainment? First, the Young Vic is a vibrant antidote to traditional West End theatre. It is well designed, apart, of course, from the usual theatrical bathroom shortage, not in fact helped here by gender neutrality. The bar scene is lively before the show, during the interval, and after the performance. You are not shooed out of the door here, but you're encouraged to stick around and have a drink on the terrace. The staff are friendly, and seem actually to enjoy their work. More important, though, the average age of the audience is decades lower than in the West End. My ticket costs 50 pounds, roughly half what you now have to spend for often inferior fare at the more mainstream theatres. It is invigorating to take in a production in this environment. I'd wager that you can enjoy anything staged here. But the collaboration is not just anything. You will get that sense even as you take your seat, thrust as you are into the thick of 1980s New York. Basquiat's signature Samo tags are scrawled throughout the theatre, while a record-scratching DJ on a raised platform spins hip-hop and disco, evoking the heyday of Studio 54, along with cool lighting effects. There are reproductions of Basquiat paintings on stage, and large translucent period photographs of New York tower either side of the action. It is hard to imagine a better set-up for a play. Another component of the enjoyment here is that the playwright is the outstanding Anthony McCartan. He wrote the screenplay for the Queen Rock Band biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, a hopelessly underrated film that I commend to you, incidentally. He also wrote the Stephen Hawking biopic The Theory of Everything and the Churchill biopic Darkest Hour. So here's a writer that can do biography. Even more interesting is that McCartan says that the collaboration is the second piece in his Worship Trilogy. We need to pause here for a moment. The first work was the stage play The Pope. It portrays a conversation in which the German Pope Benedict XVI planning to retire from the papacy, tries to dissuade Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio from resigning as Archbishop of Buenos Aires, with the clear implication that the German wants the Argentinian to be his successor. The stark contrast in personality and ideology between the ascetic conservative Benedict and the liberal populist Bergoglio drove the drama. McCartan's hypothesis is that Benedict XVI Favored the liberal devil he knew over one that might arise out of the blue in the Sistine Chapel. The collaboration is about the relationship between two artists who were baptized Catholic, but who, rather like the two popes, were very different. Warhol's orthodox faith was shaped by a devout Slovakian mother. I was surprised to learn that as well as her almost daily communion, He would make the sign of the cross, or say a Hail Mary at times of stress. And we see this a couple of times in the play. Basquiat, the child of a Puerto Rican mother and a Haitian father, was raised in a more primal faith, due to Haitian Catholicism, despite condemnation from the Vatican, incorporating elements of voodoo. As an aside, the trilogy will be completed by Wednesday at Warren's friday at bills dramatizing the meetings between bill gates and warren buffett the american multibillionaires of different generations that led to the pledge that the one percent should donate half their wealth to charity these two are protestant gates was raised congregationalist buffett presbyterian and at some level they are acting out the parable of the good samaritan McCartan has made clear what you have already probably spotted The unifying theme of the trilogy is indeed worship, respectively, of religion, art, and money. So back to the collaboration between the two artists. It came in early 1984, a time when the 56-year-old Warhol's career was on the slide, and it seems that he may have seen an opportunity to revive his standing by associating with the hot new thing Basquiat, then 24, whose paintings had begun to fetch very large sums. But the two were also bound by a highly improbable coincidence. They both almost died in 1968. Warhol was shot by his friend, some friend, Valerie Solanus, a feminist who felt she had been de-emphasized in the Warhol firmament. The seven-year-old Basquiat was hit by a car. Both survived only after major operations. There is a telling moment in the second act of the play when they compare surgical scars on their torsos. The artist's common ground was their religion. Warhol's screen prints of emblematic women, such as Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor, perhaps reflect icons of the Mother of God. One of the last celebrities he depicted was the pop star Madonna despite her deliberately sacrilegious stage name. Incidentally, Madonna, before she became a global icon, was one of Basquiat's girlfriends, and this was as likely to have been a driver for Warhol's work as any religious symbolism. When Basquiat painted a sequence of black Americans, including jazz legend Charlie Parker, he identified them as saints, a clear nod to Catholicism. But the frequent imagery of skulls in his work invokes Haitian voodooism, and by combining the two elements of his faith, Basquiat believed that art could have a Lazarus effect. In this play, he declares that he can save a critically ill friend from death, if only he can paint their portrait correctly. In real life, Warhol and Basquiat work together on over 100 paintings. Typically, Warhol would start by tracing a pop art symbol onto the canvas. Then Basquiat would add a symbol, picture or words to the painting in his style. The artists would then take turns adding layers to each artwork. Their collaborations show the clash between their styles. In my view, they're not remotely appealing. Although Warhol had collaborated with friends and assistants on art projects since the 1950s, The paintings he made with Basquiat are unique in that he allowed another artist to express their own style on the same canvas as his pop art. It is also interesting to note that Warhol had not actually painted for over 20 years when he started collaborating with Basquiat. In the play, the action opens at Bruno Bischofberger's gallery. The Swiss-German art dealer represented Warhol and had more recently become Basquiat's gallerist. His idea is that the two artists should collaborate and put on a show. Bischofberger is well played by Alec Newman, and it is clear that there is no high artistic purpose in Bruno's mind. Profit is the first, second, and third motivation. McCartan has written both artists as reluctant to collaborate, which does not appear to reflect the reality which was rather less dramatic. It was true, as portrayed here, that both were disenchanted with the machinations of the contemporary art market, even though both of them did rather well out of it. The collaboration itself begins when the two men meet in Andy Warhol's ascetic studio, the set adorned only by reproductions of his Marilyn's and Campbell's soup. The two artists have very different ideas about what art should be, Warhol's mastery of slick superficial reproduction of pop culture emblems was the opposite of Basquiat's loose improvisational process inspired by graffiti and delivering biting social commentary. Basquiat paints with spiritual fervor. And as we have seen, believes paintings can have supernatural powers. He declares Warhol's mechanically reproduced works to be bereft of soul. "'I'm Dizzy Gillespie blowing a riff. "'He's one of those pianos that plays all by itself,' said Basquiat. "'For his part, Warhol defends his theory of art. "'I'm trying to make art that forces you to ignore it, "'the same way we're ignoring life.'" Paul Bettany plays Warhol quite brilliantly in the trademark wig that hid Warhol's boldness. His laconic, whiny artist, bemoans the art world's fixation with moving on to the next hot thing, of course at the self-same time as he is embracing it. Jeremy Pope plays Basquiat with real skill, and his restless, babyish artist is already fed up with a so-white art establishment and his place within it as a black man. Why does he have to hitch his wagon to Warhol's star? And how come his graffiti is elevated to art that sells for $60,000, when equally talented contemporaries, such as his friend Michael Stewart, of whom more later, are arrested for defacing public property. In the second act, the action jumps forward a couple of years to Basquiat's very messy downtown studio. The two men in the meantime have clearly come to terms with being different and have grown closer. Their relationship is more emotionally intimate, but they are still very much the odd couple. Basquiat's infectious spirit has disrupted Warhol's detached projection of himself, and has made his self-loathing more apparent. Warhol deflects by filming Basquiat, much to the latter's annoyance. In parallel, Basquiat is deteriorating, grappling with his own trauma, a worsening heroin addiction, and the indifference of the art industry that he perceives. He turns to stuffing his fridge full of cash, Crystal champagne and caviar as you do the climax of the play comes after Michael Stewart is brutally beaten by police in a subway station though this all takes place off stage and Basquiat begins to paint his friend in an effort to heal him the work ultimately becomes defacement the death of Michael Stewart when Basquiat finds out that his friend has died from his injuries He explodes at Warhol, distraught at his art's inability actually to resurrect the dead. The collaboration doesn't address the, at best, lukewarm critical reception to the pair's 1985 show, which played a role in Basquiat's subsequent decline. Perhaps this does not matter, because Basquiat is today's top-selling contemporary artist, and his work is used to sell everything from skateboards to Tiffany's diamonds. Basquiat became the new Warhol in brand terms. How ironic. As the lights fade at the Young Vic, you hear the voice of a Sotheby's auctioneer come over the speaker, a snippet of the historic moment in 2017 when Basquiat's 1982 work Mind Blowing sells for just over $110 million. That would be the highest ever price paid for a U.S. artist finally unseating, as you may have guessed, Andy Warhol. It is a surprisingly poignant moment. I must, though, come back to the performances of the two leads. They are both excellent. This is Paul Bettany's first stage performance for 20-plus years. Based on this, we must hope that we don't have to wait another 20 years for the next one. Bettany recently appeared as the dastardly duke in the BBC miniseries A Very British Scandal. Before this, he had appeared in multiple films, including the 2 Marvel Avengers films and Captain America. But I thoroughly enjoyed his turn as Chaucer in The Knight's Tale, incidentally a vastly underrated film, which I also commend to you. Bettany's performance captures Warhol's droll exterior with pitch-perfect mimicry while also hinting at the emotional turmoil that bubbles beneath the surface, most notably in the moving scene where he reveals his scars. Jeremy Pope has a live performance CV focused on Broadway, and his television credits include the Hollywood miniseries. Based on this performance, he has a very bright future ahead. His Basquiat, a keen boxer in real life, revels in his own physique, and he brings terrific energy and charisma to his portrayal of the younger artist, moving in almost a trance to the music he uses as a background to work. The collaboration is extremely well directed by Kwame Kwe ama the Young Vic's artistic director. After its run in London ends, the play is destined for Broadway, before being adapted for the Hollywood screen with the same director and cast. In real life, Warhol died in his sleep on February 22, 1987, at the age of 58, from a sudden irregular heartbeat following a gallbladder operation. As a side note, his family sued the hospital for inadequate care. The case was quickly settled, with his family receiving an undisclosed sum. Despite attempts at sobriety, Basquiat died at the age of 27 from a heroin overdose. At home, on August 12, 1988. He had been found unresponsive in his bedroom by his then girlfriend and was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. I do hope you've managed to secure a ticket. If you have, also book your pre-theatre supper at the Anchor and Hope, an outstanding gastropub almost next door to the Young Vic. If you miss the show here, plan a trip to New York and catch it on Broadway.